Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversants are Shapeshifter and Mitra Forhar. Mitra is a lawyer that is representing Shapeshifter in her case against the medical professionals who transitioned shape without doing a thorough analysis of underlying personality issues or mental health issues. All of shape's problems were lumped under the guise or banner of transition, and she was operated on and given cross-sex hormones and is now reaping the consequences of that. In this conversation, we talk about shape's story, and we also talk about the ways in which law can be used to hold the medical industrial complex accountable for hastily transitioning people without looking into underlying conditions. If you are so moved to support SHAPE in this suit, links to the fundraisers are down there in the description. Without further ado, here is Mitra and SHAPE Shifter. Well, thank you for doing this show. Absolutely. It's my honor and pleasure. Uh, i really uh, looking forward to hearing about what you guys have set up. So I'm not a lawyer, nor am I a um, trans, detrans person. So I'm going to follow your two's leads uh, in how you guys want to talk about what we want to talk about, what we kind of want to keep on the skinny because it is a legal proceeding. So just let me know uh, why we are here and <laughs> what you guys have to share. Um, maybe I'll start with uh, kind of an overview and then um, Shape can fill in with his ex personal experience and his feelings about the situation. So uh, the lawsuit uh, obviously is about Shape's case and what happened to him and the quality of care that he received. Um, but the situation is not unique to him, and uh, we hope that this lawsuit draws attention to similarly situated persons, such as himself. Um, because as we know, gender dysphoria has several different pathways, uh, you know, different conditions, uh, feelings, uh, experiences can lead a person to feel dysphoric. Uh, and the analysis of each is different. You know, a person who, um, you know, who, and although sometimes it can be combined, a person may have more than one condition, but uh, let's say somebody who is uh, on the autism spectrum might be different from someone who has internalized homophobia. These are two different pathways. So we would use a different analysis um, scientifically to begin with, and then therefore the way we would apply the law and make those arguments. There would be an overlap, of course, but uh, there are distinctions. So this case um, specifically draws attention to internalized homophobia and how it can lead to gender dysphoria. And um, 
that should raise questions and trigger special responsibilities on part of therapists and medical providers in how they evaluate the patient and how they provide treatment, right? So if they don't inquire about the person's sexual orientation or they don't care or are indifferent to how the person feels about their sexual orientation and how that might uh, affect how they feel about their sex or their roles, their social role, or what is society, what society expects of them, then um, it creates a lot of issues, as, as we can see, right? So um, historically, one way for gay men to escape societal homophobia was to declare themselves to be heterosexuals and get married and possibly have gay affairs on the side, possibly, right? Um, so we don't really do that. That's not a common practice anymore because society is more tolerant and accepting of, of homosexuality and homosexual couples. But that doesn't mean that homophobia has disappeared from families or from society. It doesn't mean that self-stigma doesn't exist. Uh, the self-stigma of homosexuality has historically been recognized in the DSM and the ICD. Uh, it's uh, generally called uh, egodystonic homosexuality. Uh, so these conditions, uh, even though they have now been removed from the DSM and from the ICD, it doesn't mean that they don't exist. And the APA recognizes it in its guidelines for um, psychotherapeutic practice with gays and lesbians. And uh, it uh, alerts psychotherapists to the fact that um, gays and lesbians may not be comfortable with their sexual orientation. They may find that they may seek ways to change it. And of course, one way to change it is to declare yourself not to be a man, right? Um, so it's important to be aware of, uh, of this uh, condition and how it unfolds when, when it manifests itself. And it takes time uh, for people to realize that that is what is happening to them. It takes maturity, it takes self-reflection, something that is not um, really encouraged currently in, in the context of transgender medicine. Uh, and uh, so the, the, I think people who fall into this category tend to keep it to themselves for a number of different reasons because of the stigma they initially experience that drove them away um, from their sexual orientation or from kind of owning their sexual orientation. Um, and then later, either by self-blame or by even facing more stigma associated both with homosexuality and transgender practices or transgender identification um, and the fact that not there is really not enough focus on it. I mean, there is a lot of talk about how the studies have shown that gender non-conforming youth grow up to be gay or lesbian, but it seems that discussions don't go beyond that as to, okay, so now what's happening with them and how to how do we correct this in science and in law?
Mm-hmm. So not only um, could the, let's just say that there's an individual who, like Shape here, has grown up in a very um, anti-homosexual culture and then moves to the United States, uh, which is a little bit more accepting. Uh, but that context of Shape's uh, childhood is still with them. That causes internalized homophobia, which it, it, is there any, um, is that in law? Is there anything about that in law? You said that that was in the DSM, but taken out, but it's still like treated or it's still um, possibly something for professionals to be aware of when helping a individual, let's just say with anxiety, general anxiety to say, well, this could, it could be the result of your displeasure or dislike of being a homosexual and we can work through that through talking therapy um right to release that uh, or relieve that but if the medical professionals are not looking at that at all and just take the tact that well we can turn you into a woman and the individual such a shape believes that being turned into a woman one is possible and two will negate that homosexuality because shape would no longer be a homosexual um, because they'd be a woman, then they'd be in heterosexual relationships. Um, And then like you were saying, they proceed along the path of transition and then experiencing even more societal problems with the transgender identity or um, the persistent uh, reality of still being a homosexual and or also including the complications with the transition itself, like the physical transition could cause a cascade of like, why did I do this to myself? Or why was this done to me? Um, this is, I'm, I'm not achieving uh, the relief of this uh, psychic distress. And on top of it, I have a bunch of physical distress as well. Um, so I was just wanted to broaden that to what you guys are pointing out with the problems with shapes care and then transgender care at large. Right. I think one, one of the problems is that currently in uh, transgender medicine, the, the gender identity and sexual orientation are like completely, they're viewed as completely separate and independent. So, um, sexual orientation is not examined in that context. Furthermore, because of the um, ideological position um, that sex is a social construct and, um, you know, it's not material and we don't care, sex, they have also changed the, the very definition of sexual orientation. That sexual orientation is merely a uh, self-identification. It's just a label you pick and choose for yourself, as opposed to, no, this is an innate um uh, an innate attraction and it manifests itself through a pattern of behavior. It's emotional, it's physical, uh, it's uh, complex and multidimensional. They have taken that away. It's just whatever you identify. So a gay man can walk in the door into a clinic and claim to be a heterosexual woman and they write it down and they say, we have a patient who is a, a, a heterosexual woman, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah. it's all self-ID, right? And yeah. there's no examination. Um, but h- historically, uh, in the field of psychology, has been recognized that um, there are individuals who feel um, deep discomfort with their sexual orientation. 
and uh, they may seek to change it. So it's uh, egodystonic homosexuality or uh, sexual orientation, um, uh, egodystonic sexual orientation, or uh, or sexual issues non-specified. That's another mm-hmm. way. Now, all of these specific diagnoses have been removed from the both the DSM and the ICD. But as I mentioned, the um, guidelines and the standards for treatment. Uh, or not for treatment, but for uh, psychotherapeutic care and practice with gays and lesbians um, does indicate that this can be a factor that therapists should should be aware of. And there, it recommends um, a series of steps and practices um, to try to get the person to become comfortable with their own sexual orientation, as opposed to try to change it. Yeah, or to change their body to... negate it yeah to cancel it out yeah and so in any sort of civil rights law that is based on protected characteristics Mm -hmm. is thoroughly destabilized by self-id right because if you if you 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 can't discriminate uh based on sexual orientation or sex if somebody identifies as the opposite sexual orientation or sex right so how does is that is that the vector of the lawsuit is through protected characteristics or protected classes? It is protected characteristic and class. Um, you raise a, an issue that is broader. It's a broader legal question that is not um, directly raised in the in the case because, um, in a way, it's not necessary for the case to go into that question, which is um, the relationship between gender identity and sex as as legal classifications. Um, the law is not completely clear. Uh, gender identity as such enjoys some protections from discrimination, but that is not the same as being a, a category on the same level as sex, uh, mm. because the way it uh, the way the law is uh, at this time, it is considered a subcategory of sex. In other words, if you um, if you discriminate against someone, if you discriminate against a man because he's wearing a dress, you have necessarily discriminated on the basis of sex because and, and sex is stereotyping, right? Because a man should not be in a dress, right? So it, it's not. It doesn't um, currently. U.S. law does not recognize gender identity as a classification on par with sex Mm. or race or other Mm. protected classes. There is um, a movement um, to try to change that in the US and internationally. Uh, But in my view, that is quite problematic because it confuses the law, as, as you just said, because if we take away sex, then we are taking away distinctions that are important in law uh, for the purpose of uh, legal protections, um, sex-based rights, um, gathering of data and information, um, protection of prisoners. So it creates a a lot of um, confusion and it tramples upon many people's rights in many different circumstances. Yeah, this is beyond the scope of this conversation, but I just want to point to um, the balancing act between protecting ideological freedom for somebody to identify how they want to, and does the law dictate 
if you how you identify, you know, there's freedom, but there's also material reality. So the law has to have like balance between, you know, you know, this is the material reality that that reality is based on. And then here's the ideological freedom that we that the law should take into account. So there's just this odd balancing act, especially when we get into self-identification with regard to these. Um, these these classes that were originally uh, supposed to be uh, you know material classes a woman is a woman a man is a man nobody ever questioned that now we have a Supreme Court justice who who won't even touch that question asked a scientist I'm not a scientist because right. you know there's the ideological versus the material reality thing going on here right but to to broaden the well to to specify from that very broad point of view to this particular issue shape um, maybe, maybe you two could kind of formulate um, the problems that shape what you've faced because of due to the consequences of the professionals overlooking your sexuality or imposing upon you or going with you uh, with this cross sex identification. Well, <clears throat> When professionals affirm your newly found identity, it's you kind of looking for outside sources for verification of your thoughts. <laughs> and when they verify something like that, I spend a decade of my life building a life upon that identity. And it was just smoke and mirrors, but also now I'm missing body parts. I am permanently altered. I mean, I get so my so many questions about why I present the way I do, or why haven't I taken breast implants out? None of this is gonna make me the way I was before. <laughs> um, we don't even know the extent that I've been altered in. You know, like what does the future holds for me? Also on a social level, I've living, I guess, as a woman or what I thought I was living as a woman, all that caused me a lot of harm in a sense that I lost my family. I lost a lot of friendships. I always having to hide who I really was came at a cost. It actually magnified my anxiety <laughs> to constantly holding this huge part of my what I thought was my past but it was really never it really never left me I was always a man I never became a woman so it almost just made me live a lie like 24 7 pretty much living this character and um at the end of the day I feel angry because the mental health help was not properly given to me. And if it was given to me, I would have been in a different place in my life right now. I feel like I just hyper-focused on transition and because none of other mental issues were identified properly, I never got a chance to work on those issues, such as borderline personality disorder. And um, so, it got worse over the years and it costed me because borderline and an ability to control my emotion caused me a lot of friendships and relationships uh, with good people that could have been in my timeline still. And sometimes that loss hurts more than the physical cost of losing body parts and losing physical health. 
Um, I've, I'm also very lethargic because of my hormonal imbalance. Um, so that's something that's been a challenge to get help with, which is, um, you know, figuring out the end of system because very few people have been in situations that I am in. Only post-op trans men could possibly relate to this. <laughs> Or, you know, post-op trans women, some of them who maybe try to take testosterone later. You know, it is hard when testosterone was designed to work with a functional penis or, you know, male genitals. <laughs> and when you no longer have your male genitals the way they were supposed to be, now it's like inverted inside of me. You know, it's it's hard to figure all that out to balance um, between trying to get my energy back, but also not try to not get attention to my genitals that have been destroyed it's it's hard because um i'll probably never be able to have a healthy sex life as a gay man also nobody ever told me that sexuality is fluid you know when i was younger i like certain things sexually but now have certain desires that cannot be fulfilled because my penis is permanently gone like converted and changed um i don't want to be too graphic that's the best i can explain it yeah. well, well keeping it you know hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th do you want to tell people the big news all right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. We've, we've spoken before, and, and Mitra and I have spoken about the details of this. I, I think one fine point that Mitra brought up um, in our previous conversation was that estrogen causes you, uh, well, the lack of testosterone causes you lethargy. Estrogen probably it causes some sort of brain fog or, or some sort of dampening of your energy and your awareness. And then um, because you're designed, your body's designed to use testosterone or to process testosterone, when you take synthetic testosterone, that activates your libido. And then that libido is permanently frustrated due to surgical alterations. Yeah, and it's also a reminder of what I've lost because for decade I could have just been having a healthy encounter with gay and bisexual men and enjoy my sexuality. <laughs> I do miss my male sex drive, but it will never be the same without gonads. Um, it's just not the same, no matter how much testosterone I pump into myself. It's hard to explain how it's not the same. <laughs> Uh, for somebody who hasn't been through surgical alter alteration. So as I said, very few people can relate to my experience and it's not easy. And I don't think anybody has answers. And I don't think there is even such thing as detransition past certain points. <laughs> you can wear flannel shirts, you can wear combat boots, but you can get back, you know, healthy body parts. Um, 
not to mention i'm still trying to figure out you know because it's a piece of colon that they took at some point to do colon vaginoplasty is right now inflamed inside of my body so i may need at least another surgery not even to give me any kind of ability to have sex but at least to remove that part of colon tissues that's been like taken from my bowels and shoved inside of me and that's another surgery like <laughs> that i'm very afraid of and those implants also have to come out and i'm really scared what my body gonna look like as somebody who struggles with body dysmorphia am i gonna have those like linear scars that a lot of like uh f2ms get you know that doesn't look good in my opinion <laughs> And um, that's scary, but they have to come out. I just talked to another detransitioner. They had their breasts removed and they felt so much better. So part of my lasagna could be also attributed to just having foreign implants in my body. I hmm. don't know, nobody knows. There is no objective tests to test how yeah. much of the way I feel attributed to my destroyed endosystem and how much of it is also could be partially due to just like um, breast implant illness. Um, so there is no way to tell, but I'm sure even after breast implants come out, like I will still be not at my energy levels like before. So in a way I'm like physically disabled now because of my mental struggles <laughs> in the past. I don't know how is it better. I feel useless. I feel like I'm drainage to the system. You know, because now I have to take some kind of hormones and have all those resources spent on me throughout my life that I could have spent on people who had actual like issues, physical issues, right? So um, from that standpoint, it felt it sucks, you know, being in this situation. Internalized homophobia, like that, really also messed up my life because as I. Um, you know, fell into transgender identity and got affirmed in my identity. I isolated myself from my gay friends because I was like, oh, I'm no longer gay. Like, screw those homos, right? I'm like a straight woman now. And it kind of made me more isolated. And again, just because I was living stealth um, a lot of times, like people, I couldn't talk to people about my struggles growing up as a gay man. <laughs> So I was holding a lot of stuff in for years and I couldn't talk openly about my experiences <laughs> of, you know, growing up in a homophobic culture. Also, I cut out all the connections with people that knew me before surgery <laughs> because I wanted like uh, to start a new life as a woman, you know, which is like those people actually really cared for me no matter what genitals I had, no matter what I identified as. And the only reason for acting like that was internalized homophobia <laughs> because these people were part of gay and bisexual community and I just didn't want to have anything to do with them. And um, I think the hardest part probably, my husband passed away that I've been married to for years and he's known me from before surgery. And this cross-sex identity took away from our time together because I always felt like I needed to affirm my perceived womanhood and um, instead, I should have just been at home with somebody who actually loved me. <laughs> and um, but because of my internal homophobia, I felt like I needed a real man, like a real straight man, to affirm my cross-sex identity. And if I was given proper mental health help, I would have never been so homophobic <laughs> and so afraid of being, um, you know, with somebody who has known me from before transition. Yeah, so that's probably the hardest pill to swallow because 
his passing is still very recent and I wish we could spend more time together, but instead, you know, I was trying to date straight men <laughs> and that's really toxic, really, um, looking back at it, it was a lot of cringe association that I got myself into all because I was so affirmed in my identity. <laughs> hmm. And, um, yeah, I don't think this transition benefited me in any way, uh, in a hindsight and I wish I could take it back, but I can, like I've been permanently changed. So, yeah. So there is, uh, like there, there's age of consent, uh, right. And I guess the law can't necessarily say to a grown person or an adult that they can't do what they want to do with their body and with their life. Um, but that also raises the question of medical health providers, whether psycho psychological or surgical, uh, should they not take into account other stressors on this person who, who wants these procedures? Like, is it, is it ethical for these doctors to transition somebody without identifying and, you know, dealing with other conditions or underlying conditions? Instead, they go down the path of transition and and to question transition would be conversion therapy in, in a sense right so th there's just a lot of kind of uh ethical questions right that that come to the fray here not only about age of consent but also being in the right being taken care of as somebody you know uh, of right mind and body right right so it's a law of informed consent it's applicable to all persons regardless of age it actually becomes more sensitive relative to minors because minors have some capacity, um, but not full capacity to understand everything. And so there are tests to determine whether a minor can understand a particular procedure or not. Um, but adults are also protected by the law of informed consent, regardless of age. Um, and that does require uh, understanding or being given uh, all information that is material to the decision-making process. So material is obviously, a, a, you know, it's, it's a word that's subject to interpretation, uh, but we can, uh, we know from case law and also just from ethical writings in medicine, you know, in bioethics, uh, what are what is the type of information that's material to a patient's decision making? Okay, mm -hmm. certainly diagnosis, prognosis, uh, risks and benefits, uh, alternative methods of care. Um, just just to name a few, the list. Can, the more complicated the procedure is, the more disclosure is required. A mm -hmm. simple procedure, talk. I got a cold. Give me some medicine. You're not going to have an informed consent uh, discussion unless a person has a particular condition sensitive to cold medication or something. But barring those unusual circumstances, dispensing you know cold medication is probably not going to have a very long discussion of informed consent. But sex hormones should have a very long process for informed consent because there is so much about it that we simply do not know. Yeah. yeah. You know, and to the extent we do know, they have harmful side effects. So there is need for a lot of discussion. 
and uh, actually to dispense medication, um, it is required that there is a diagnosis by a competent healthcare provider, competent meaning the person is qualified education-wise and they're licensed and uh, authorized to dispense medication. So you need a diagnosis and that it has to be determined on the basis of diagnosis that this medication is necessary and that it will benefit the patient. So these requirements apply whether the patient is a minor or, or an adult. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, if, if what you say is correct about informed consent and what are there exceptions for informed consent around experimental treatments, treatments where the data isn't in, uh, if shape had possibly been given, you know, access to, let's just say three hours of, uh, video interviews with transitioners and detransitioners that that's representative statistically representative and then was able to see okay here here some people end up here and some people end up over here some people are happy and goes fine other people aren't so happy and then they deal with these other issues here if that would have been offered to shape uh, would that like cover informed consent and if not were uh, you know that raises questions about suppressing detransitioner stories suppressing Pressing statistics around regret, which we kind of know is happening right now. And holding people to account for that is kind of in the case that you're bringing up and all these points. I don't know of the case specifically, but it's a part of what you're bringing. Disclosing rate of detransitioners or the reasons people detransition, um, that can be a part of informed consent. Um, as you said, we don't have very good information because no one is really systemically collect, uh, collecting this information. Some studies have been done, so we have some ideas, we have some knowledge, um, and it would be helpful to disclose that, but that is not the only information that needs to be disclosed. So for some reason, this ideological category of trans person obscures every other vector of the human being. The whole human being is disregarded and put into the trans woman. Right. You're a trans woman now. Everything else is irrelevant. We're going to do this one therapy and it should solve everything else. Because if you're really a woman, that'll probably solve the fact that you don't like yourself. Right. It seems like under the system, you could be the most like molested, battered, like person out there with all kinds of issues and they will still treat gender dysphoria as separate and they would still affirm you and give you drugs and surgeries if you want. That's what it seems like. They don't see gender dysphoria or feeling similar to gender dysphoria as possible causation is, is that some of the words or product of other comorbidities or adverse childhood or adverse uh, social life experiences. Mm -hmm. And so when arguing this case or trying to reform the healthcare system around this issue, um, you're, it's partly an ideological battle because you have to dismantle this category of the trans person, whether it's a trans kid or just a trans woman, you have to say this is this is one way of viewing a person, but it's not 
complete and it's leaving a lot of things off the table and plus there's a lot of downstreams of downstream effects there's a cascade of costs both personal costs like shape has said physical costs and also uh, financial costs because these continual surgeries going clicking all these boxes and i know for a fact that once somebody treats transition as an identity in and of itself there's there's no stopping it. You can change your cheekbones, you change your collarbones, you change your lips, you, you keep on doing all this body modification. That, there's a whole cascade of costs. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. So I just, I'm wondering, bigger picture, what needs to be reformed? Or if this is a systemic problem with the institutions, and shape is kind of a casualty of that, what needs to be questioned and challenged? And who needs to be either held accountable or what processes need to be changed or policies need to be changed? Uh, I think we need to return the gatekeeping model. Uh, I think as it was practiced by Dr. Ray Blanchard. And Zachariah. Right. So it's, um, and in fact, in his book, he specifically states that um, egodystonic homosexuality is a contraindicator to transition. Right. So if we would return the gatekeeping model, it would keep out the vast number of people that are currently identifying um, as trans because they are suffering from another condition. In other words, let us let us really understand what is happening with this person. Mm -hmm. Why are they identifying as transgender? Um, yeah. And it, would they truly benefit from medical transition? Mm -hmm. So it's not about taking away adults' uh, rights to transition if they so choose after in fully informed consent, but also after a full assessment, mm -hmm. right? To make sure that this really is the treatment that they would benefit from. Yeah. Right. Well the, there's there's just kind of like a linguistic problem with only talking about the benefits. It's always a cost benefit ratio. Like, will the costs outweigh the benefits? Because there, you can't do any sort of medical intervention without a cost. There's right. always going to be a cost. Absolutely, and that's informed consent. So maybe you think you're going to benefit for these reasons, or studies have shown that a very teeny minority of people have benefited. Uh, but there is a risk that, you know, you won't benefit mm -hmm. for these reasons. Yeah. Or maybe health reasons, maybe psychological reasons. So that has to be fully understood. Um, so the gatekeeping model, um, to me, it seems like it was a very sound model. And it was removed on uh, for political reasons. It was not removed because... Um, new evidence was uncovered. New studies showed that we don't need to do any gatekeeping and everybody can transition and be fine. There, there was no such discovery. But it was political pressure from transgender activists saying, you know, this is needless and we don't need protection and we want to transition when we want to transition. Now, mm -hmm. mind you, most of those people were much older. Right. And it is one thing to say, well, a 40 year old man can self-identify and transition if he wants, but it's completely another matter for young people. 
who might be confused, who may have a history of trauma, who may have other types of mental health conditions that puts them at risk of feeling gender dysphoria. Mm -hmm. And so, well, th there's one aspect of this story or this topic right now, right here with Shape, is uh, looking back toward what happened and why, and was that proper, was it ethical, and questioning that, and then bringing somebody to account whether or not that was proper. But what about the future? Like, Shape, is, the, is part of this to get you the care that you need now is the, is the medical uh, establishment able to help you where you are? Uh, if even if whether or not they, they helped you to your benefit or not in the past, which is the question we're talking about now, but are they able to help you now? And is part of this to get you the help that you need right now and to get you the help that you'll need in the future and to get evidence based help? Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, they still don't know what's going on with me. I mean, I've been trying to get help with my genitals, as I've mentioned. It's very demoralizing that eight years later... I'm still, you know, traveling and trying to find solutions and all kinds of tests are being done on me. It's traumatic. There's already so much trauma around my genitals uh, due to surgeries, due to, you know, certain experiences I had way too early in my childhood. Um, and now I have to go through this test when they shove things inside of me. <laughs> When they do all kinds of tests, just still, I feel still like part of experiment <laughs> that's never ending. And I think that's going to be the storyline. No matter what I do, it's going to be another experimental surgery where surgeons are trying to figure out like what is the best, the maybe the least risky experiment they could do on me. I'm not even sure they're thinking that way, but I hope they are thinking that way. <laughs> so I'm laughing, but it's honestly not funny. And mm. it, it is like I'm stuck in this perpetual social and medical experiments that I'll probably never be able to escape, right? So it's like, I don't even know like what is the solutions are. And I don't think anybody knows. <laughs> it's easier for people online to be like, go wear a flannel shirt or cut your hair. Like as if that's gonna physically change my physical health <laughs> or social place in society. I don't know, it's just, I don't think I have the answers, but I also don't think professionals have the answers. The last time I was at the endocrinologist, I actually stopped seeing I haven't even gone to endocrinologist in months. I just don't know if anybody can help me. She was like, well, if you feel like a man, take more testosterone. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was just more like ideological, like if you feel a certain way. And that's when it 
just hit me how ridiculous things are. Yeah. If you feel so somehow your feelings dictate your endosystem. <laughs> um and not Is there any evidence for that 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 our mind over matter with regard to our hormones? Can we Well I don't think there is, I, I, I guess if you look at it from ideological transgender perspectives, and that totally makes sense, right? If you feel like a woman in a man's body, then take estrogen, or if you feel like a man in a woman's body, then take testosterone. But I don't think there is enough evidence to show that's healthy or sustainable in the long run. I'm also frustrated how people talk about transition as like one point in time and they don't talk about how transition is a spectrum right and i was never informed that 90 percent of trans people never get bottom surgeries <laughs> i was never told any of that i was not told anything <laughs> um and mm. you know something like drastic gentle surgery is very different than like some people will take a little bit of hormones for aesthetic purposes and stop it and if they're lucky their endosystem will revert back to being healthy the way it was and hope will not permanently out of balance and they are trans and then person who went to radical, you know, genital modification surgery is also under the same umbrella and it's completely yeah. ridiculous. There is no studies to show who will benefit, if anyone, from this radical genital surgery. Maybe there is like drastic diminishing returns, like yes, maybe cross-sex identity could help someone. <laughs> But we're presenting socially um, as a stereotype of opposite sex might help someone, but maybe some of the surgical interventions are reducing quality of life instead of helping. Mm -hmm. But maybe like trans scientists and activists won't ever admit to it because that means that they supported all the surgeries for decades now. <laughs> and maybe they have ruined more lives than they actually saved. I think that's the case in my personal opinion, but do we even have the studies? I don't think we do. And um, again, like I said, I do feel like I'm in a perpetual like hamster wheel of experiments, <laughs> both medical and social experiment, and nobody really studied me in any scientific setting, so to say. Yes, my story is out there and I've been sharing it with the world, but that's not, you know, scientific study. <laughs> And um, therapists that gave me, you know, letters for the surgeries, they never reached out to be like, hey, are you alive still? Are you okay? The surgeons that worked on me, they don't care. You know, they moved on <laughs> with their lives. Um, and as far as I know, they're still practicing medicine. Um, so I would like some account accountability. And I'm getting so much hate from transgender community. Just yesterday, somebody was trolling me and telling me, oh, aren't you the one with one inch coochie? Ha, ha, ha. It's like I'm trying to help these people with my story, but I'm being ridiculed and I'm being gaslit and I've been gaslit for years into believing that I'm in 1% of regretters. Somehow like the regretters and the transition is just like 1% because it doesn't even make sense. And constantly the knee surgery is being brought up. I just hate that. What's up with trans community and the knee surgery constantly like, oh, well, regret from the knee surgery is less than uh, sex change surgery. Like, uh, I'm just so frustrated. And mm. it seems like I'm getting it from every angle. <laughs> yeah. So well, it's there's, hard. There's a number of different um, uh, levels to this topic in general. And uh, you brought up all the different kind of types of trans or degrees of trans. And uh, 
we haven't even discussed like female to male. We're just talking about male to female right now. So there's like this huge uh, complex community, but there there's the there's the cultural issue. And there's the political issue, which has to do with policies and laws. And then there's the, I guess, the the law issue. And what, Mitri, you're engaged in is the, what's the purview of the law? What What's the role of the law in deciding what's correct or what's incorrect or what's good or what's bad, what's uh, what's proper and improper um, in, in this whole conversation? Okay, so it, I would say it's, it touches upon uh, a number of um, dimensions of law. It, it's not straightforward. Um, law certainly has a protective function. It also has a right function. People have a right to do certain things, but people also have a right to be protected from harm. And uh, earlier on, you um, you raised the issue of, you know, trans identity sort of taking over everything and how that, it, you know, in a way clashes with other people. So it, it creates a conflict of rights. That, that's yes. what it's called, a conflict of rights that the transgender movement is creating in its current form because it's not recognizing boundaries. So all rights have boundaries. Right. And so there is a responsibility on the part of the courts and Congress or state legislatures to define those boundaries uh, to protect others from having their rights violated. Right. So um, I would say trans rights generally would fall under privacy rights. You know, you have a right to express yourself as you like. So a man wants to wear a dress. you You have a right to do that. Um, there, there is also a recognition of identity, the right to identity, uh, which is what is behind the uh, offering the possibility to actually change your your name and birth certificate, not birth certificate, but change your legal identification. Um, and different countries have taken different approaches to that. Uh, so these rights certainly exist and they are valid rights, but there is no right then to impose your identity upon others and to invade their protections and invade their rights Mm -hmm. or impose your view of how their identity should be defined. Right. So for example, the denial of sex, it um, interferes with other people's identities. It, men and women who don't define themselves by gender, right? Or, yeah. or homosexuals, because if we don't recognize sex, we cannot recognize homosexuality yeah. because it is sex-based. Yes. And right. not to mention, which is beyond the scope of this conversation, parental rights. Do, do, should the state enforce uh, the will of the child on behalf of a trans identity upon the parents and then take the child away or, or indoctrinate the child or, or keep, yeah, you know, with schools and stuff like that. And absolutely. So that, that's another aspect of parent, parent child relationship, um, informed consent in medicine. So yes, doctors, um, do have the freedom to engage in experimental care, but patients have a right to know they have a right to know that is experimental care. Mm -hmm and what its risks and benefits are. So it really brings into question um, 
so many aspects of law and the way it's working right now because we don't have any specific regulations in this area. So it's okay. all unfolding. And because yeah. Congress is not acting, it's all unfolding in the courts. Okay. Okay. Um, but it's just the, just the nature of self-identification beyond trans beyond the tra- transsexualism it wreaks havoc on law it wreaks havoc on reality on on the medical industry's relationship to reality laws relationship to reality schools in the case of sports their relationship to reality is completely just unwoven by this self id and 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 prizing this as the highest right that you you are what you say you are and everybody else has to follow along. But what happens when two people disagree about what if my self ID clashes with your self ID who gets, right. who, who, so there is no hierarchy of rights. There, there is no hierarchy of rights. Um, there is a conflict of rights. So law needs to be clear and law needs to be, um, predictable. Uh, Law cannot be so vague as nobody knows what it means and what the outcome of its application might be, like can't be so speculative. And that is the problem if you put gender identity on the same level as sex for identification purposes when we apply the law. So when we do that, we create a great um, degree of uncertainty in application of the law. A man can compete with a woman and women lose in the sports. That that can be the outcome. But we have sex-based organized sports, right? So therefore it really doesn't belong there. It can be a subset of sex for um, a, on the basis of sexist stereotyping and um, be protect and receive certain protections essentially as a privacy right. But it cannot reach the level of um, being in the same category as, say, sex, race, because those are very fixed and definable categories, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And and gender identity, by definition, is not observable, uh, verifiable, it's changeable. So it, it just cannot be put in the same category. Okay. It, it violates the rule of law. It, okay. It's inconsistent with rule of law principles. Which- so if the law is there to protect in the role of protection of somebody with regard to medicine protecting, I guess there's malpractice, right? That's how the law adjudicates medicine, but the medical industry or, you know, profession has, uh, so, so they make decisions. There's these bodies, these professional organizations that make decisions about standards of care. And then doctors get qualifications in different procedures. And if there's something broken in that chain, how does the law come in and uh, instigate fixing it? The law can't say we are going to decide what the evidence is, but the law can put pressure on the professional organizations through malpractice or through forcing, um, you know, asking for evidence. Like, what is the evidence that you guys have? What are these qualifications based on? Does the law have any uh, authority over medical uh, professions? Right. So when um, when a plaintiff can establish that the standards of care were not followed in any okay. field of medicine, um, yeah. then the physician or the healthcare provider can be held accountable under malpractice laws for violating yeah. standards of care. Okay. Okay. Uh, 
healthcare is not as such regulated. I mean, uh, neither Congress nor state legislatures, they generally don't make a, a lot of rules saying you have to practice medicine in such way, in this way and that way, because obviously medicine is, you know, there is a judgment element that the, the physician has to exercise judgment. And there is the evidence, the scientific element, and the two have to come together and it's difficult to legislate that as such. Um, However, when something gets out of control, like we have now, we do have states that are saying, okay, well, then you can't do it to minors because it's harmful. Okay. Right. And it's irreversible. Yeah. It's, and, and minors so, do not understand what's happening to them. So if, if, if a practitioner doesn't follow guidelines, that's the definition of malpractice and they can be held account um, through some sort of suit. But if the standards of care are broken themselves, right, then right. the law comes in and, and says, fix it. Right. So the standards of care, it, so this transgender medicine, uh, this situation actually raises very interesting questions that don't often arise because usually physicians do try to um, to practice within the standards of care. Physicians can... Um, diverge from the standard of care, um, that is permissible, but usually there, one, we need the disclosure, and, and two, there has to be some reason, like what is the evidence? What is the evidence for the standard of care? What's the evidence for the physician practicing in this way? Right. And we, when we dig into transgender medicine, we see that this is not evidence based medicine. It's not evidence based when they put it in the standards of care. It is not evidence based when they practice it. And interestingly, if you look into the relevant standards of care, they all come with a disclaimer that says, well, physicians need to make their own determination of what's going oh. to patient. This is, you know, this is just a recommendation or, okay. you know, so it's not binding up upon them. In a way, yeah. right, yeah. and that's how they protect themselves. Okay, yeah, very yeah. Pontius Pilate. Right, so it's like of the hands. even WPATH has that. You know, physicians should make the individual uh, judgment, and uh, you know, nobody should be, you know, punished for not following these standards. Yeah. yeah, and then the other vector of pressure would be insurance, at least in the in America, mm -hmm. right. Um, at some point, insurance companies are going to do the cost-benefit analysis on just a bookkeeping level, and then they'll make decisions on what's covered and what's not covered. And can could, like, let's just say the state of Illinois, just for sake of argument, force insurance to provide uh, gender-affirming care if insurance companies say this is not, um, we, we, we have a lack of evidence and we're not paying for this anymore. Could Could the state force certain medical procedures through insurance? Right, so currently there is, uh, it, currently that is happening. And the legal basis for that is that it's discriminatory, that it's discrimination against transgender people and people who, are, of, um, who trans identify, right? So on that basis, the states are moving to force insurance companies to, to, provide, um, to, to provide coverage. On the other hand, no, it seems like we are not really uh, pushing the same argument to get insurance companies to cover detransition costs, right? Yeah. So detransitioners kind of fall into um, like a hole, 
<laughs> yeah. Essentially, it's a it's a gap in the in the law, or no one has tried to enforce it. I mean, well, do a test Oregon also. and I think Washington maybe, but I know Oregon has outlawed uh, that or, or barred detransitioner care. Like, so they are taking steps to actually bar detransition de care. They won't pass these well, bills with. It would be interesting to challenge that. Yeah. Because, and, yeah, <laughs> it could get into some legal arguments. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. And uh, just last part on the law part, but um, if if the, you kick the can, I'm just we're kicking the can. Who's responsible? Who's responsible? How are they held responsible? But are legislators ever held responsible? Has there ever been like a lawsuit uh, brought to a congressman for a for a bad law, or is the state kind of takes over? Like like with uh, the the um, I know a bunch of people were sterilized in California prison systems, and whoever. I know California paid out for that, but did right. anybody like who made those laws? Well, that's a very interesting, um, interesting questions. No, usually um, officials, uh, when they are acting within their uh, realm of responsibility, scope of responsibility, they cannot be sued. That's the discretionary function. And mm. they cannot... Um, yeah, they cannot be sued for their pro judgment that is associated with their position. Okay, interesting. That's yeah. just a little thing. Um, but yeah, so but the state can be sued in some instances, yeah. such as the California case you mentioned. But that's just suing the state. Um, I don't see how I don't see a scenario like that for this situation right now. But I, I think there are a number of different lawsuits that can yeah. be brought. So with regard to this situation, what um, should people know and how should they follow or support if they are so moved? Um, well, um, I, I think I would like I would like to raise awareness of internalized homophobia. Uh, it, it's not enough just to say, oh, these kids will grow up to be gay or lesbian, leave them alone. But then we need to understand that a lot of detransitioners uh, that is who they were. So now they need our our help and support um, so that we can uh, we can essentially stop that. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it seems to me that this population may be having a hard time coming forward uh, or speaking up, uh, partly because the changes in them are so irreversible. Uh, it seems that many of them don't want to deal with um, being told, oh, you have to change your appearance, or why didn't you change your appearance, or, you know, you still have long hair, or, you know, and my message is, it's that's what irreversible means. It really mm. doesn't matter if you have long hair or short hair, um, and just if they are inclined to speak up, I just want to encourage them to speak up. The detransitioners. Feel yeah. isolated, right. Because yeah. some of them do. I, I have heard, I've been people call me and say, oh, I know someone who wants to talk to you. I'm like, yeah, fine, great. And then I never hear. And then that person also says, oh, but they never got back to me either. You know, it's like there is this fear of coming forward, of yeah. tackling this issue. Yeah. Um, and so Shape is very strong. He, he's a strong and brave to to share his story publicly uh, and um, he can be I mean if you want to support his 
legal expenses, uh, not my fees, but rather this goes to expert fees. These trials can be quite expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Partners for Ethical Care um, runs a campaign uh, to support shapes expenses um, so people can contribute that way. Okay. All right. Um, and shape, how about you, uh, you keep on getting trouble with uh, social media companies, but, uh, <laughs> if people want to follow along or support you, how best can they do so? Yeah. Social media is saying they want to censor, um, the transitioners maybe, <laughs> or people whose views are not mainstream. Mm-hmm. So yeah, my social medias are being censored, but my GoFundMe for the legal case um, is in the description of my YouTube channel. I don't know how much longer I'll have. <laughs> my YouTube channel was this current censorship, um, but you're welcome to use that link if you don't know how to donate to Partners for Ethical Care. I'm really lucky to have Mitra as my lawyer because she is very compassionate where I'm passionate about the subject, you know, mm-hmm. she really wants to help people regardless of their presentation <laughs> who have been harmed by this ideology, mm-hmm. by this experimental care, by unethical professionals. And I do wish that more people did have a courage specifically to pursue legal action because that's what's gonna make a difference. I think at this point, just posting a video on social media, why I do transition, you know? <laughs> that of course helps, but at the end of the day, it doesn't help in terms of actually making change within uh, the medical system, within the judiciary system. And yeah, I just wish more people could do it, but I also understand that being on social media can affect your mental health in even more negative way when people discuss your looks, <laughs> your genitals, so that can be difficult. And um, that's why legal proceedings are the way to go. And I'm hoping that more people will come forward, especially the trans men or biological men who went through transition and had you know their bodies destroyed or their sex life destroyed their health wrecked <laughs> they should have a right to pursue legal actions against mm-hmm. people who have harmed them and people who haven't given them proper information proper health care yeah. and there I'm could, if, if there is a detransitioner who who uh, is thinking about um standing up in this capacity where can they go uh, what, what kind of um, resources that for legal help or a, counsel i do have a small youtube channel so i'm always happy to talk to somebody on a live stream i don't have a huge platform you know i'm not a bucket or white or chloe call obviously but i do have a, a small platform i'm more than happy to share my email it's listed in in my youtube channel again if you also want to share your story anonymously, you're welcome to. I just had another person of trans experience, you know, credentials their face. Um, that's valid too. I understand why people don't want to come forward with their face. Um, there's partners for ethical cares. I've been really nice. I've been helping the transitioners with lawsuits and uh, with mental health help. Uh, what else? Your platform is amazing. <laughs> What other, if, if I miss something, please, Mitra, tell what other resources people could reach out to. Um, I think they can reach out to you or 
are to me there i mean there are organizations that advocate for detransitioners such as pc um genspect um there are a number of other organizations that they can find i'm sure many people are i i think most people are aware of these various organizations but i think not everyone is willing to actually come forward mm-hmm. because it it is tough i mean it's it's tough to take a public stand and you already, you know, usually people have had issues. That's how they got to where they are. And the problem with uh, actually this uh, automatic transition is that the original um, mental conditions that, that drove the person there does not get treated at all. So it gets exasperated over time and it gets worse. So then t- treating those conditions itself becomes more complicated. Mm-hmm. 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 So it's well, a lot the, to own up to, you know. Yeah, yeah, and then and then being public on top of all of that um, right. is a whole right. not necessarily the most mentally uh, mental health uh, beneficial thing to to do if if you know if you have any sort of anxiety, um, yeah. But thank you very much for this opportunity to hear uh, this in detail and this is really important this is a really important aspect above and beyond the cultural war kind of stuff that we uh get distracted by there's actual issues here on on a legal level on a medical level and on a personal level that i'm I'm, again I'm, i'm honored and pleased to be able to explore with you too thank you Thank I you. just wanted to add that um, heterodox, I guess that's a hot word right now, heterodox spaces such as like your channel and even Genspecs I've gotten a lot of heat recently are important because when you're living certain mindset, it's kind of hard to go from, you know, trans identity to right away to like radical circles. <laughs> so it's important to have that like in the middle space mm. where people can share their stories. Um, even some people who are still trans identified has already been harmed and have realized that it's been harmed. They just um, maybe don't want to identify as D-trans or go back to, you know, presentation of their original sex as they also deserve help and care. And I do feel like channels such as yours and organizations that are genspect are important part of this ecosystem. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. And we're off the air.